0: Welcome to mind money balance, the no guilt, no shame podcast to help you get your mind and money in balance. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm a financial therapist and coach woman of color and popcorn connoisseur. I am so glad you're here. Let's go. So we started this week with talking about self-love and self-worth and self-care. <laughs> Today, we're going to be continuing in that vein of taking care of yourself with Dr. Devin Price, the author of the newly released book, Laziness Does Not Exist. I met Devin through Instagram, as I tend to do. But it was because I'd read one of their essays on Medium about this idea that laziness does not exist as a high... I don't know if high performer is the right word. As an overachiever, I guess I would say it's fair to say that I i like to do a lot. Um, I find myself having a hard time sitting still. I'm constantly working on You know how does capitalism impact my desire to work and to work hard and to achieve things and to have to-do lists? So their essay really spoke to me. And I was really excited to have them on the podcast to talk about other things that I love talking about, which is money. And I wanted to share an excerpt from one of their essays on Medium about the title of it is Confessions of an Oversaver. And I want to read you this little excerpt from them. Quote, Every time I spend money, even on essential things, I'm nearly waylaid by a swirling twister of guilt, dread, and self-doubt, and my mind projects me into a dystopian future where all my possessions have burned to the ground, I'm long unemployed and sick, and every financial reserve I've carefully built has been depleted, unquote. For my listeners who are prone to anxiety or ruminating or stressed out about money and saving, You can probably resonate with that statement for folks who maybe don't identify with ruminating or anxiety. That might, that sentence, that excerpt might sound a little bit dramatic, but for folks who experience anxiety and the fear of running out of money, even when they have enough money, that statement is incredibly. Apt, you know, I think a lot of my clients they struggle with this idea that if I spend, I won't ever be able to stop. Or if I spend, I'm dooming myself to the inability to regulate. And later on in that the same piece, Devin goes on to say, quote, it turns out that sometimes you do have to part with money in order to live, unquote. And I'm really thrilled to have them on. And just to share a little bit more about, about Devin, Dr. Price is a social psychologist writer activist, and professor at Loyola University of Chicago's School of Continuing and Professional Studies. Price's work has appeared in numerous publications such as Slate, The Rumpus, NPR, HuffPo, and of course, Medium. They live in Chicago, Illinois with their partner and Chinchilla. I am really, really thrilled for this interview. I hope you enjoy. Awesome, Devin. Thank you so much for coming on to the Mind Money Balance podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know about you and your work, give us the brief spiel about who you are professionally and what you do personally for for fun and downtime.
1: Great. Uh, Yeah. It's good good to, to remind me to think about that latter half. So my name is Dr. Devin Price. I'm a social psychologist, so I'm more of a researcher by training, and I am the author of Laziness Does Not Exist, which is a book that's just, um, at the time of recording, just coming out, and that is all about just kind of sociological kind of and cultural myths that we have in our culture about needing to be afraid of laziness and kind of the origins of the drive to just constantly work ourselves to death kind of in American culture. So that's something that I do a lot of writing about and a lot of thinking about. I'm also a professor at Loyola University, Chicago, where I've seen a lot of that drama kind of play out with my students who are all working adults. So they are like the most workaholic people alive and yet somehow still think they're lazy. So that's all the stuff that's like professionally constantly on my mind. Um, and then personally, um, I guess, what am am I doing now, especially in in quarantine? I'm going to a lot of virtual concerts. I used to go to a lot of real life concerts. I'm going to a lot of, you know, Zoom concerts and Twitch concerts now (laughs) and concerts in like Second Life and like other massively multiplayer online games. And I'm obsessing over my pet chinchilla's cage and upgrading that as much as possible because... If I'm trapped in a small apartment, at least I can give him a very like <laughs> lavish mansion is kind of the idea. So that's that's me in a nutshell.
0: Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. And that's, you know, how I connected with Devin was through their their writing on Laziness Does Not Exist. It so spoke to me and aligned with a lot of the work that I do in my belief that nobody's inherently bad at money. This is a belief that is kind of hoisted upon us through many, many different ways. And there's one very narrow view of how a person is or is not supposed to be engaging with their money and using their money. So on that topic, tell us a little bit about your money story as much as you're comfortable.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm very comfortable. I've written things about it a little bit on the in the past. I think I have an essay floating around. I think it's called um, Confessions of a Oversaver or something like that. I come from a family that where the only attitude we had about money was like, don't talk about it, freak out about it, <laughs> and, but don't answer any questions, just kind of have this constantly roiling anxiety. My dad came from a really poor background in Appalachia, and so he still had that very like Poor mentality, the kind of poverty panic kind of mentality. So I grew up with a lot of just like being guilted for any expense and freaking out a lot about money, but without actually looking and talking about the numbers and really having any kind of grasp over that strategically. So I still have that problem very deep seated in me. And I certainly. Developed a lot of very like over saving, kind of compulsive, nervous habits around money, especially in grad school, living on like a $14,000 a year stipend and things like that. So I've always had and, and still to some extent do have this problem of I need to constantly be fi- taking up additional work. I need to constantly be saving, mm. even if it's something that's like preventative healthcare that is going to save you more money and save you know your life in the long run <laughs> <laughs> um, and just pay off. It just kind of, you know, things matter other than money, like, you know, having checkups and tooth cleanings. The one kind of turning point for me, at least in finding something good to do with all that nervous energy was kind of reading a little bit more kind of investment stuff and the fire I don't know what you think about the financial independence retirement early people
0: uh, so many so, thoughts there's lot yeah
1: so so there's a lot of like charlatanry in that world but it was a, at least a few blogs and strategies where it was like listen if you have money like saving it's great put it in an index fund where it's not costing you too much money to invest it and if you just look at the numbers like investments will pay off like you don't need to And you're not supposed to look at it and worry about it constantly. So even though I do think the kind of financial independence movement is like very buoyed with like privilege and a lot of problems, I did eventually kind of get some information about like, okay, I'm just going to invest it and not worry about it and like try to have a little bit more trust also in myself to kind of just make the things happen. And I don't need to run myself ragged all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm at now. But obviously a lot of that is also just a consequence of having a full-time job that pays decently. Writing books and like having some of the privilege, like it's easy to to stop being as neurotic about money when you finally realize that you have some amount of privilege around it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to hear a story that I hear pretty often, which is money is the final taboo in families and very much in our culture. And at the same time, we're supposed to inherently just know what to do with it. So how and when did you decide, I'm going to start seeking out some information about money? Like, when did that happen?
1: It came to a point where I had just saved so much money and I wasn't doing anything with it, which what kind of absurd problem is that to have? But I had basically, (laughs) like, I was not, I had this point where I was working as an adjunct And I had a bunch of money in savings, surprisingly, because I was constantly doing freelance data analysis, consultant work, and teaching at like five different places. I wrote an anti-workaholism book because it's my own uh, disease. (laughs) And so I had paid off my student loans and I was doing all of these things that like society says you're supposed to be doing. And I just had no idea what I was supposed to actually be doing with money. When did I know that I could actually feel comfortable to start paying for, like I didn't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. Like I was doing all of these things and I had all this money saved, but I was afraid to like spend any money on, on rent or health insurance or all these necessities. So I knew things were like kind of crumbling. You know, I was like a very like Dickensian figure, you know, of like I have money, but I'm not doing anything with it. So I need to like figure out what do responsible habits even look like. Because I knew it was also making me a less generous person, not just with myself, but with other people, because I have so many friends that are like in the service industry or are writers or artists and do not have anywhere near the amount of financial privilege that I now have. And, you know, I would put money into people's GoFundMes and things like that, but I could always feel myself just as I was holding back with myself, I was holding back with other people. And that was when it like really felt like, okay, something's not right here. I'm not paying for health insurance, even though I have a savings, I'm not helping my friends enough relative to how well I'm doing, I need to figure out like how to think about this stuff clearly because the just like paranoia, paranoia, work, paranoia, hide the money under the mattress strategy that I had inherited from my Appalachian family Mm -hmm. was not working.
0: Do you think some of that, that paranoia of hoarding and holding on to the money, was that a safety response for you? Like you felt safer if you had more money? What was behind that?
1: All of my problems in life come from kind of the same thing. So my workaholism, and I think this is common for a lot of people who are workaholics, I had some kind of like eating disorder behaviors and I also had this financial kind of anorexia Mm -hmm. um, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And they all came from a lack of trust in my own judgments Mm -hmm. and my own feelings I didn't trust myself to set limits on when I was tired and should stop working and when I actually need rest and self-care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't trust my own hunger and I didn't trust any of my own desires with mm-hmm. regard to money. I really didn't think I could be, if I let open that gate even a little bit, I had this fear that would just it would just like, you know, I would just spend all of that money because I wouldn't know when to stop. Um, oh that gosh. I'd be really irresponsible. And so the solution to all of these, like all this mistrust in myself was just like clamp it down work this many hours every day, constantly look for more. Don't have too much hunger. Don't be too greedy, mm-hmm. even with like what you spend money on. And that's yeah. kind of where that came from.
0: Yeah. Okay. So as you started to kind of recognize, it actually doesn't feel the way I thought it would. I thought it would feel like, like some sense of control of having that extra money or withholding food from yourself. You realize, okay, I, w- I have this money. I want to be more generous And at the same time, as I heard you say like, look, I'm donating to GoFundMes, but it doesn't feel good enough. Or I'm I'm taking care of myself or maybe I'm spending on fun things, but it doesn't feel exactly right. Take us through a little bit of that kind of discomfort because that's where I think so many of us get stuck anytime we're making any sort of behavior change is those first few steps. The first time we try something new, it feels wildly uncomfortable. How did you bridge that gap between, okay, I can actually start to see this a little bit more clearly. I'm ready to start spending in alignment with my values. How did you get there? I would say
1: I'm not there yet. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. an ongoing process. It's mm-hmm. something I talk about with my own therapist a lot. Like it's yeah. one of the big things. Like any time that I've gone on like a family vacation, obviously not doing anything like that this year, but last <laughs> year we took a family trip and I was so filled with anxiety, even though like I knew I could afford to pay for it, pay for part of my partner's trip and like kind of throw somebody towards our mom going it still just felt so anxiety provoking to me because I couldn't in my mind make the math work of how are we going to have enough fun experiences to justify this? This oh, <laughs> is very like achievement and like checking the box off yeah. measurement kind of mindset. And my therapist yeah. really had to like work with me, like, and again, this is a very privileged thing to be worrying about, but yeah. like kind of just breaking down, like the point of these things isn't to rack up the most positive experiences possible. It's about just having this opportunity to all be together, and mm. whatever you decide to do with that time once you're there, that's valid. That's what it's actually for. It's for access to this opportunity and this quality time. It's not to go to this beach, go to this on this ride, do whatever. And so that was just a little, you know, couple of days where I had to really practice that kind of mindset. And I I talk with my therapist a lot too about just how do I know. When I'm doing enough with my money to help other people, how can I tell, like, how much should I feel it? Should it be enough of an amount of money that I can kind of like really see it and feel it? How do I know where that is? Mm -hmm. And just kind of challenging myself to kind of make more regular commitments to funding the Patreons of artists that I really like, or um, just putting money towards reparations on a kind of monthly basis and Mm -hmm. just like really making it a regular habit that's kind of just ingrained the same way that you pay for utilities or bills instead of each instance being this kind of panicky decision of like, oh God, can I give this person money? How much should it be? And Mm -hmm. it being this really scattershot thing where people always have to kind of ask me which obviously creates a power dynamic. So those are the mm-hmm. things that I'm, I'm working on with regard to that stuff. But yeah. my first gut instinct is always, oh, I shouldn't do this. Like, <laughs> you know, my couch can be falling apart. I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. I can just wait till I find one, you know, that a neighbor's throwing out and just take that. You know, I just yes, that yes.
0: It's really interesting because I know you're not a therapist, but you're in the world of psychology, obviously being a social psychologist. And so many folks who I've interviewed this season have had a similar struggle in allowing themselves to spend. We, in our kind of field, we really tend to value being frugal, holding on tightly to things. Like, I mean, you're in academia. I can like picture, you know, the reinforced elbows really being a a value. How does money show up in academia? Like, do you see any patterns amongst colleagues or just general themes around money?
1: Oh God. Yeah. Um, So the first one that really jumps out for me is how the class disparities in academia are constantly there and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of markers of it, Mm -hmm. but it's not ever named. So it's very taboo, right? You're never supposed to even negotiate for any terms of a job offer in a lot of academic positions. Sometimes you get to kind of negotiate over whether you get any startup fees or things like that, but it's really verboten to ever give anybody the whiff that you're doing the work for the money, right? You're supposed to be driven purely by passion and, you know, a pursuit of the mind and things like that. And the thing about it is that like showing any concern about money, that's kind of revealing the fact that maybe you didn't come from money or that you don't have money. So it's like this awful double bind where it's actually still a deeply classist thing to act like caring about money is elitist. It's totally a weird head game that they play. And I also just see huge, like, class divisions in academia in terms of how people talk about what vacations they're going on and what trips. Like, when people were, like, they talk to me about these, like, long European vacations that are going on. And it's like, I've been to Canada once. That's it. You know, (laughs) that's not how I have lived or the people that I grew up with have lived. And so I don't have access to some of those cultural signifiers that come from people with that kind of privilege who've had those life experiences. So those are the big ones and just the kind of culture of overwork and how that's always going to affect your money mm-hmm. and the idea that in academia, you're, you should be willing to sacrifice anything. You should be willing to move across the country for a job. You should have a partner who's willing to give up their job to follow you there's a very small subset of people who have the economic mobility to actually do any of those things.
0: Yeah. It is really interesting to watch all of that play out. And, you know, as I listened to you, the other thing that is coming up for me is the parallels between academia and artists, how you were talking earlier about you've got a lot of friends who are artists and creatives. And again, how to be a good artist is often to be a starving artist. That is, you know, one of the ways in which it's glorified. So I'm curious, like, if there's something there about you donating to or contributing to Patreons that is, is really important to you, given that, like, you can't really, or maybe you can, and I'm not aware, but, like, donate to other folks in academia and say, like, hey, let me, let me help you fund your project or, you know, let me help you out with that bonus. I'm, I'm curious about if there was an importance for you in donating to artists specifically.
1: I see so much of it play out constantly, especially right now, right? Like my partner's an actor. So like in Chicago, so many theaters have just died because of COVID obviously. And he's really lucky in that they, the nature of his theater company is they've been able to move to a digital format and make short films really successfully. But I've just seen how so many people's like life calling just lives and dies by if you're selling enough tickets or if you have enough people funding you online Mm -hmm. and it just gets harder and harder and more and more like centralized by these like big industries that kind of swallow things up. And then everybody else is kind of left to, to kind of scramble for, for donations. So I, and I think there's something uniquely rewarding about like, yes, you give money to make sure that someone like I, I donated to somebody's Patreon recently to or not Patreon, GoFundMe recently to like get one of their teeth replaced. Like, you know, all these medical expenses, that stuff's really rewarding in one particular way, but it can also feel very depressing, right? Like it's, it's, you're kind of throwing money towards this structural problem, and my own individual contributions can't fix the lack of health care and lack of dental care that people have. Whereas, if you also put a little bit of money towards arts and nonprofits and organizations that are doing a reasonable job of it, you're helping to create something that's lasting and helping Mm -hmm. to create an apparatus that pays artists and Mm -hmm. maybe pays health stipends for artists, which is true with with my partner's theater company and many other arts organizations of all kinds. And so there's a need, I think, psychologically for most people to feel like you're doing something that matters and is going to last. And so I think psychologically, it's really important to both Put out the fires when you can, and help out people who are in crisis, and also find ways to help people thrive, because that yeah. keeps you kind of going mentally yeah. and emotionally.
0: Yeah, I love that balance of the reality is you know we we can't fix everything. We we can hardly fix ourselves like that. You know, I think so many of us that's the struggles, just like how do how do I make it work? How do I survive? But to say I'm going to donate a little bit here, a little bit there, and and know that like to your point, I'm putting out a fire in this arena. And in this arena, I'm helping to hopefully create some sustainable change. Everything as I listen to you sounds really thought out and intentional. Can I blame that on the academic in you? Or is there something else there that that has it a reason why everything's so intentional?
1: I definitely overthink everything, probably. <laughs> yeah. And it's also probably like the writer in me that's like, how can I package what's actually like a swirl of anxiety and overthinking every <laughs> single thing I ever do inside of me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's to- totally fair. Totally fair. What about on a personal level? What are things that you do to cope or engage with your money in a way that feels good for you, are there certain tools, certain books, certain apps that really help to dial down that anxiety for you?
1: So a lot of the resources that I've consumed that have kind of helped the anxiety ebb are some of those kind of problematic financial independence, retirement, early people. When I was really first starting to learn about this stuff, the blog Mr. Money Mustache was something that I I had heard like a friend from grad school talking about and it sounded so goofy that I was like, okay, I'll check out this blog. And the guy is... It's very like, oh, I only worked in Silicon Valley for five years and then I was able to retire because I live so dirt cheap. And did you know I'm, you know, 45 years old and I don't need health insurance because I have a positive attitude. And so some of it's like (laughs) really goofy and like really out of touch with most people's realities. But some of it is just this grounded like, well, if you just kind of look at these stats, like if you have X amount of money invested, it is going to grow over time. And if, you know, the proportion of, The money you have coming in versus that growth is like in good shape. You're going to be fine. You're not supposed to look at this stuff and and panic about it all the time. You're supposed to kind of just like set it and forget it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. That's something that did end up giving me a little bit of solace is just like reading a little bit about some kind of like investment stuff and how those things kind of worked because there is so much misinformation about them and all these like, again, like I said, charlatans that are like trying to convince people to like play the market or things like that when really it's just put money in a retirement account. If you're privileged enough to be able to do that, you're fine and you are in a very special echelon in society. Mm -hmm. That has helped me. And the kind of unfortunate thing about that is that it's just It's a lot of good fortune and privilege to be able to do that. And I think recognizing that and realizing that being like a panicky martyr about the whole thing was not going to make my life any better. And it was also going to mean that I was less compassionate and generous to the people around me who needed it and needing to like finally have that perspective and not be making decisions out of fear, but out of recognizing the strength that I have and the power that I have and trying to find ways to use that power that are good. Mm-hmm. Like I, I felt like I had a responsibility to kind of start getting my shit together because then I'm sorry if I can, you if can, I can swear. swear on this. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I had to get some of my shit together because it was holding me back from making responsible decisions and making sure that I was taking care of my family and, and other people I care about. So that keeping that in mind that like I can do good with this if I don't live constantly in a place of fear, that kind of really helps motivate me to clear yeah. the cobwebs a little bit.
0: Yeah. And and what I think is uh, helpful about this whole FIRE movement is finally we're starting to see some diversity in the movement. So for folks who aren't familiar with it, it's financial independence, retire early. And in a nutshell, the idea behind it is work hard when you're young, save as much as you can so that you can invest that money in an index fund and not have to work again. And, and now there's some more nuance. There's this slow-fi movement, and then there's fat fire, which is like <laughs> if you really want to go all in. I mean, there's all these different things. What I find really helpful, another personal finance Filipina out there, Berna, Anat, she says, personal finance is mostly hella male and hella pale. And I think finally we're starting to see so many other people take up space in the personal finance arena. So it's not just shame-based, you're bad if you have debt, you're bad if you buy the lattes, you're just shame, shame, shame. And we're starting to take into account our intersectional identities and privilege and social justice into these movements. And hopefully FIRE will come around. But yeah, that that Mr. Money mustache, I had been there too. That was one of my first uh, exposures to the FIRE movement. So yeah. Yeah. And
1: there. There, there is a, uh, a Facebook group that's like socially conscious mustachians or whatever. And it's all <laughs> the people who kind of got sick of the forum for Mr. Love Money it. Mustache. And they're over okay. there having conversations like, oh, is it always wrong for me to invest in property and be a landlord? And almost everybody in the group is like, yeah, <laughs> probably. And so like we get to have these like good discussions about like, okay, if you are going to invest, how do you do it responsibly? How do you think about the harm versus the good that you're doing? And And, and also just questioning the logic that's like not buying coffee at at Starbucks is not going to make or break you. That just mathematically does not
0: add up. No, no, it does not. So finding people and finding different ways of, of people making it work helped you to feel less anxious about your money. Like seeing it play out in real life and go, it's actually possible that helped. Yeah. Yeah. That helped. And just having
1: perspective, like one thing that is good about the fire kind of culture is like questioning every conspicuous consumption thing, which in academia is really plentiful, right? There's a certain (laughs) way you're supposed to dress. There's a certain neighborhood you're supposed to live in and, and kind of car you're supposed to drive those things are, are often complete wastes of money and mm-hmm. are just going to add to your social and financial anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing for me was breaking away from being around those people mm-hmm. and mostly hanging out with people who are, have a totally different outlook on money, like artists, people who work for nonprofits, a lot of like, you know, social workers, like those are my people that I like hang out with. And that's always a reminder of like, I don't need to live up to this ivory tower standard and I need to recognize how comfortable I am compared to most people in this country. And then mm-hmm. I need to really think, okay, what does that mean for me? And what do I want to do about that?
0: Yeah. Oh, love that. I appreciate your your nuanced approach to it. I think that's another big thing for people is we, we so get into black and white thinking, right or wrong, good or bad, with everything, but certainly when it comes to money. So like you said, even with the fire movement, while it, it might've started out and you know people can point out its problems, at least it showed us that there's another path that it, it doesn't have to be work for 45 years for 40 hours a week, take your two vacation days, and then you'll get a pension, right? We've at least been able to see that there are different ways to do it. Yeah. Love that. So any final thoughts for somebody who who might be in a similar situation as you were when you were working with that anxiety you were getting ready to maybe donate to your first patreon account or maybe pick up a tab for some friends when you were finally getting ready to exchange that currency in a different way any words of wisdom you might impart on them
1: yeah the wisdom would be also very similar to what i give out in the context of laziness and learning to not be afraid of laziness. And the the idea is that the more you practice compassion for yourself, the easier it is to be compassionate to others and vice versa. So the Mm -hmm. more you kind of are generous and have an open heart to other people, that also makes it easier for you to kind of stop punishing yourself. Mm -hmm. So Getting into the practice of when you need something, if you are able to buy it for yourself, buy it for yourself and stop punishing yourself, being nervous about it. Be generous with yourself, with your needs, with feeding yourself, with keeping your home comfortable, you know, caring for yourself holistically and also extend that generosity and compassion to the people in your circle, in your community that you can afford to and manage to do it to. So whether that's giving people on the street money who are asking for money, I always really strongly encourage that. Not having strings attached to who you help and why and just mm-hmm. kind of having a spirit of compassion and recognizing everyone is doing their best here. Everyone's having a hard time and we are okay when we take care of each other. Oh and my for gosh. me, that's an ongoing practice. I'm still so nervous and like anxious about money plenty of times. But when I remember that and kind of step into that, I feel more connected to my community. I feel more psychologically safe, and I'm putting more good into the world.
0: Oh my gosh! As you said that, something popped into my head, and I can also edit this out if you're not comfortable answering. But you had on your Instagram stories, like tell me about a scam you pulled recently, (laughs) a financial scam, and one that stood out to me. And I, I I wish I could remember the specifics, and you may be able to, but it was essentially a person who'd said, "Look, I went around with like a broken." car part. I can't remember what it was. And kind of feigned that I need money for it, even though I didn't need it for the car part, but I needed it for survival. And your response was something to the effect of like, yes, if somebody's asking for money, they need it. Like bottom line, can you kind of explain your response to that specific answer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So a really common thing that comes up when someone is on the street asking for money is all of this interrogation that we've been taught to do. They're lying about being in an emergency. They're just going to spend it on drugs, all of these kinds of things. We get that really drilled into us. us. And kind of my response to that is really just like you said, if someone is asking for money, they clearly need money and we don't Mm -hmm. get to really, we don't really have a right to kind of police where that need is coming from and what they need in that moment. And it's really telling to me with that example that people were willing to give that person money when they thought they were helping a person who was just like them, a regular person whose car had just broken down and, oh, hey, I'll just give this person money and then they'll be fine, Mm -hmm. versus a person who was in continual poverty and needed money to make rent and buy food every day. People saw that as more of a lost cause or a less deserving recipient of generosity than somebody whose car had just temporarily broken down. So we need to kind of detach from that idea of deciding who is worthy and who is not, because Mm -hmm. everyone is suffering. Everyone is dealing with a ton of challenges. Even if someone does take money and buy, let's say, alcohol, like if you're homeless and you're sleeping on the cold ground every night, like sometimes you might need to blunt the pain, right? Like there's a Mm -hmm. lot of reasons why people make quote unquote suboptimal Decisions and right. so giving people agency and respecting them and trusting that if somebody's in that position that they're doing something like that and they're like lying or misrepresenting themselves to get money, that just speaks to how badly they need it. I think it is a really good place to start in kind of re establishing new pathways in your brain to kind of just stop questioning when someone's in need do they really need it? How do they end up in this position? Are they deserving? And to just kind of question those reactions when you notice yourself having them and just go, well, can I help this person? Mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. That's, then I, if I can, then I can. And there's no strings attached to that. Yeah. And if I can't, that's fine too. Obviously, a lot of us are having a hard time right now and not everyone <laughs> can do that. But practicing that compassion is, is just taking an extra second after you have that knee-jerk response.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that with us and, and just practicing that compassion. How, do you, how are you practicing compassion these days towards yourself? Oh,
1: oh geez, I don't know.
0: Um, I think <laughs>
1: I think like questioning a lot
0: of like word
1: count rules that I like impose on myself, like, oh, I need to count, I need to write this many hours per day or I need to get this much writing done. And it's just so much harder to to write now that I that we're in lockdown for you know 11 months and just yeah. realizing that like I don't have the capacity to focus that I once had, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, That's a big one. Yeah. I think just giving myself permission to be more messy is so important right now, probably oh. for everyone.
0: Well, permission granted, Devin, to be as messy as needed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> so where can everybody find you and where can everybody grab your book?
1: So um, Laziness Does Not Exist is in every retailer where you it's it's on pre-order now until January 5th, which is when it comes out. So any bookseller, if you have a local bookstore that you love, give, give them some love. And then my writing is at Devon Price, that's D E V O N P R I C E, dot medium dot com. And on social media, so like Instagram and, and Twitter, uh, it's at Dr. Devon Price.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your compassion and giving us a little bit of that academia lens. <laughs> it can be so helpful when we're we're in the clinical space so often to zoom out for a second. So thank you. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, it's fun to talk about this stuff. Of course. Let's get into this week's takeaways. So the first takeaway that I took from my conversation with Devin is the quote that they wrote in one of their Medium essays that it turns out it takes money to live, right? And I want specifically for the people who are also chronic oversavers, who identify with Devin or in the previous episode with Dr. Marie Fang, where we talked about this idea of being frugal to a fault and how sometimes our frugality can get in the way of us taking care of ourselves. And that it does take money to live. And it doesn't mean you have to be frivolous with your spending, but it means that we also have to spend money on things to Prevent us from getting sick or from our cars from breaking down or our pipes from bursting in our house. If you're like Devin or I and you're in the frigid, cold Midwest, right? So thinking about the importance of parting with our money and letting money flow out as we let money flow in. So if you identify as frugal, you identify as a chronic oversaver, let this be the reminder to you that when we put money back out into our communities, it actually helps our communities and holding on to it and hoarding it, specifically when we are hoarding it and not taking care of ourselves is really harmful, which is why I talk all the time about practicing financial wellness as a pillar of your self care. Takeaway number two, find your people. (laughs) This comes up again and again, but find people who are making it work financially in a way that works for you. Devin shared about kind of getting involved in the fire movement peripherally, but finding Even within the FIRE movement, a smaller cohort of folks who identified as socially conscious, right? I've talked about conscious capitalism on this podcast before, or if I haven't, (laughs) that's a reminder to do so because I definitely have on other people's podcasts. But this idea that you can find people, we are social human beings, even if you as identify as an introvert, even if you are on the autism spectrum, we do need other humans and other capacities to help provide us with support, accountability, guidance, all of that is really, really important. So find people who are making it work and find people specifically who have shared ideals so that you can practice your version of socially conscious capitalism. And third and finally, be compassionate and generous with yourself when it comes to your money. When we are kind to ourselves, when we acknowledge that we are human and we make mistakes, that allows us to continue on and to make forward progress, whatever progress looks like for us. For example, if you are working on maybe saving money, maybe you are a chronic overspender, and you're working on saving money. You know, I'm recording this in January. It's the big time of year for resolutions. Y'all know I don't do resolutions. But anyway, let's say you've set yourself a resolution that you're gonna save X amount of dollars, and now we're three weeks into the new year, and you decide you wanna go shopping, and you buy something and you start beating yourself up for it, all that's going to do is contribute to that guilt and shame spiral that is going to make it so much harder for you to take those action steps toward saving for the thing that you want to save for. So be compassionate towards yourself, be generous towards yourself for those times where you hit roadblocks, hitting those roadblocks, persevering with gentleness, with softness, and with stillness is a hallmark of human preservation and of resilience, especially, you know, right now with this snapshot in time. So practice compassion and generosity with yourself when it comes to your money. And if you want to pick up Dr. Price's book, definitely check it out. It's called Laziness Does Not Exist, distributed by the same book distribution company. That's a weird thing to say as my book, The Financial Anxiety Solution by Simon & Schuster, which also I was really happy. I know cancel culture gets a bad rap, but I was really happy that they decided to not publish a book by a person who was really contributing to everything that happened last week. Wednesday, right? So I don't have to say his name. You can do your own Googling, figure it out. But I'm so thrilled and support and happy to support Simon and Schuster as they take actions against white supremacy. So with that, I will see y'all next week. If you love this episode, take a screenshot and tag me on Instagram at MindMoneyBalance with your favorite takeaway. I love seeing what resonates with my listeners and sharing it in my stories. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week right here. Neither the host or guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, medical, or other professional information. If you want professional help, please seek it out.